Welcome to Poets and Writers. This is Henry McCarthy, WEHC 90.7, coming to you from the beautiful Emory and Henry College. We have a great show for you today. We have Michelle Gillespie on, and we're going to talk about her book, and you're going to be real interested in it out there, you folks around Emory and Henry College, and we're coming to you from Emory and Henry College because we're going to talk about Catherine and R.J. Reynolds by uh, Michelle Gillespie, Partners of Fortune in the Making of the New South. And you're going to find this real interesting because I'll bet my listeners didn't know that RJR went to Emory and Henry College. So, Michelle, welcome to Poets and Writers. I'm honored to be here, Henry. This is a real, real treat for me. Um, and especially that this broadcast is coming from Emory and Henry, where RJR went to school for two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a pretty pretty bad student in some respects. Uh, so he ended up, but he was really good in math. So he ended up taking lots of courses in math. And I think Emory and Henry can proudly say that uh, RJR's uh, business acumen has some some sources, some origins in in that wonderful college. Well, and we are going to talk about that because you know he learned. They let him take his second year there. He stayed there two years, and they let him take a lot of ma- design in his own program because he was so good in math, and not very good in the classics or anything else. I assume. I mean, in, in terms of the academics, but fascinating story. And he was also brought there. Uh, by uh, uh, one of the Lybrooks, one of the friends or one of the relatives of the family who had gone to Emory and Henry College. That's campus. right. So uh, and and, um, and Lybrook had married uh, RJR's oldest sister, Mary. So that was the, con- that, was the connection. Um, that was the connection that brought him that brought him there. Uh, and I think he was able to design his own, his own courses, as we'd say, in 21st century parlance, because he suffered a learning disability. So he, he really had trouble writing uh, and spelling. And so anything that was more humanities-oriented was very tough for him and difficult to communicate on paper. I think, so I think reading and writing were tough for him, even though he had you know, an incredible mind, an incredible financial mind, an incredible mind about marketing, uh, and I think a very good mind and a very good gut about human nature as well. Then he went on and founded uh, R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company here in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And we're recording here in Winston-Salem on the campus of Wake Forest University today. And Michelle, I hope you don't mind but me mentioning that you are the new... Um, Talk a little bit about what your job is now. Sure. I am um, the new dean of the undergraduate college. I've been at Wake Forest since 1999, so it's my 16th year here. Um, Wake Forest is, I think, just a very, very special university. Uh, Its faculty are these amazing, dedicated teacher scholars who care so much about the ways that our students learn uh, and the ways that we can support them in their curricular um, learning, but also in their co-curricular lives as well. So it's really an honor for me to move out of the faculty and to uh, move into the dean's office and be an advocate for this kind of student learning and also to be an advocate for these, these, these really wonderful faculty teaching these really wonderful students. Interesting. As we like to ask on Poets and Writers around the mountains here, where are you from? 
I am, it's funny because I'm a historian of the American South, but I was not born in the South. I was born in New Jersey. Uh, I was not born in uh, urban New Jersey. I was born in rural New Jersey. I'm always quick to tell people I was born in the northwestern part of the state. Uh, so I was born in rural for agricultural uh, countryside. And I think that's probably always given me an affinity for, for Southern history. When I was 17, I was um, selected to be an AFS student to go live in Indonesia. So I lived in Indonesia for a summer. And when I came back from living in Indonesia and really thinking about the world writ large, I came back to New Jersey and the Northeast and I said to myself, this is a very narrow place here in many, in many, many ways. There's a whole world I need to know more about. And so I, I thought about where I wanted to go to college and I decided I wanted to go to Texas. Uh, and I, I picked Rice University, and this probably was not a good reason to pick Rice University, but I picked Rice University because it was very far away from New Jersey, New England, the mid-Atlantic states, and I thought it really was another culture, another part of the world. And in many ways, Texas is, but I had a wonderful, wonderful education at Rice. And uh, Do you know where Rice Village is? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Village? Yeah, what, tell me about Rice Village. I, I walk to Rice Village all the time as an undergraduate student. I spent lots of time in Rice Village. Well, when I was 15, I uh, hitchhiked out there, caught the bus and hitchhiked out there and joined my brother. At 15? He was working out there, yes. And he was working there in Rodney's, uh, it was a clothing store. It was very famous at that time. And this was in 1960. And so I worked there and for the summer, I didn't work, I worked all around. I worked downtown and in different places. I had many di different jobs, but uh, I would walk through that campus at night because uh, we had a little apartment in Rice Village. And uh, I always thought that was such a beautiful campus there. It is the yeah. absolutely beautiful yeah. campus. Uh, it's really it, it was a very lovely place. I was there in the um, 1979 to 1983, mm -hmm. and I, I consider it um, uh, one of the one of the best universities in the country. I think it was mm -hmm. then. I think it is now. But it was also a place where I was very closely mentored by wonderful faculty. I was an English and a history double major, and these faculty took a real interest in my intellectual and my personal in my personal life. Um, I, I, I worked when I was um, at Rice. I worked in two different jobs. My first job and the job I had all four years there was as an undergraduate assistant for the Journal of Southern History, which mm -hmm. was published at Rice. And that was really the determining factor for what I wound up doing. I loved um, working for the journal because we would get these articles that faculty were submitting and I would see that they that these articles were works in progress that were sent out to other scholars to review and uh, and to to edit and to rethink and so just the to see how that history was not history with a capital H. So, so that's how you got interested in the southern history. Exactly. And so you could be somewhat objective then since you were a Yankee, right? Yeah. So, from the north. You know? Well, I don't know. I, my thinking about it, my thinking about doing southern history was that the questions that southern historians were asking were questions that, that American historians mm -hmm. should be asking. Yes. Um, at yes. that time we were beginning to study civil rights as 
as a historical phenomenon, asking about the place of race in American freedom. And I didn't see American historians asking those questions. It was Southern historians who were asking. So that's really what uh, what attracted me uh, to to become a historian. And then you were influenced by who, who, when you were coming along, we always like to ask, and I'll jump around and you you keep me focused as, as much as possible, but... Do you remember, like, growing up, were you always interested in writing? And do you remember the first thing you ever wrote? I had Naomi Shihab Nye on this show, if you know Naomi Nye's work. And she was like, yeah, I remember in the second grade I wrote this poem. And she just clicked it off, you know. And I said, well, I remember in the second grade I wrote a poem, but my teacher didn't like mine, and I forgot <laughs> it. You know? Do you remember I, how you got into writing? Or? Well, I, I was a reader very early on. And so in second grade, I don't think I was uh, as aware of myself as a writer, but I I was reading in second grade um, Pride and Prejudice, and I was reading uh, Tess at the Dubervilles. So, so I was sort of precocious in that sense of reading these 19th century, you know, huge novels that I think, I don't know how as a second grader I understood. I'm sure I didn't understand them, but I, I think it made me really interested in words and, and ideas. And then by fourth or fifth grade, that's when I was writing. That's when I um, had a much stronger sense of the power of the word and the way that you could tell story, narrative, mm-hmm. and the there was a kind of power in doing that by framing it very carefully with your own language you were producing something you were creative and imaginative and really by writing a story you were creating a way to remember something and that that there was a kind of power in that and I love that so you were down at Rye. You graduated from high school up in New Jersey. That's right. Is, was that a public or private high school? I went to public school in New Jersey through ninth grade. Mm-hmm. And then I had this notion that I, I I was in this very rural school. And I just kind of felt like uh, I was not being challenged. And I begged my parents to send me to private school. And um, and I and they conceded, and so I went to Stewart Country Day School of the Sacred Heart, a Catholic, a ca- very small Catholic girls' school at the outskirts of Princeton, where um, there were forty students in my graduating class, and where being a smart girl was not a bad thing. In fact, it was a really wonderful thing to um, to have, uh, you know, other students and a community that thought uh, that that being smart was okay. And so I loved it. It was a great great education. And when I went to Rice, there was really no difference between um, my experience as a, as a high school student and moving into college courses. It was it was seamless. It was absolutely seamless because of that education. So you were down at Rice, and then that's when you got interested in Southern that's history. That's right. And you're considered quite a scholar in the area of Southern history, which leads me, and you've written, talk a little bit about your books. Well, I've I've written two books. The first book grew out of my dissertation. I went back to Princeton, to uh, Princeton University to do my PhD. I was very interested in 19th century history. I studied with a really wonderful man, um, a fine, fine scholar, James McPherson, who wrote Battle Cry of Freedom, Pulitzer Prize winning scholar and other really, really wonderful scholars. And so I wrote two books. The first book looked at artisans, free white artisans, and what their politics were and what their economic opportunities were in the South before the Civil War. I was fascinated by the fact that historians had examined artisans in Boston and New York and Philadelphia and saw that they were really important political actors in opening up 
the democratic process in making sure all men got the right to vote. And so I wondered what happened in the slave South? Artisans. Yeah, artisans. So artisans would be anyone from a silversmith to a shoemaker to a barrel maker to a cabinet maker to a painter. All of the, all of the services um, and, and crafts that were needed to make this economy work, to make these, the American economy work, were provided by artisans and craftsmen. Exactly. Um, and these same artisans and craftsmen have, have historically, in the 18th century during the Revolution, really until the eve of the Civil War, had a, real, a profound impact on politics and, and really are the beginnings of um, uh, American labor. So that was your first book. So which, that was my first book. That... So what are these Southern, what, what happens? In a slave South, what do white craftsmen do in a slave South when you have slaves doing a lot of this work? I wondered whether these artisans might be radical and might challenge the political order. And what I found out was that they didn't at all. They, they, they didn't. didn't. As soon as they had enough money, as soon as they were successful enough, they bought, they hired slaves, and then they bought slaves, and then as soon as they had enough money, they left the towns where they had their crafts, where they had their shops, and they left those towns, and they bought land in the countryside, and I called them planters in the making. Making, so they became the next generation of planters. That is so interesting. And you, your theory was, or you would think. Perhaps they would not be. Uh, that they would be critical. Be, they would be, be critical, critical of yeah, slavery because they, independent. because they were competing with slaves in a way. They were be yeah. competing with with the, the crafts that slaves were doing. Um, so I thought that they might be radical and opposed to it, but they weren't. They became slaveholders themselves. So yes, right. Yeah. That's exactly that's exactly right. So that's why we need to go. We need to ask questions, but we also need to answer. You know, be thoughtful and look in the sources and yeah. answer them with what we find in the sources, not what we want to find. And so in that the sources. was your first. Book. That was my and first. And you book. mentioned James McPherson. He's uh, talk a little bit about him. Well, James McPherson is uh, just has been such a wonderful mentor and is such a wonderful example to me because he started out his career looking at uh, the history of abolition in America. And that looking at abolitionists led him, and writing about abolitionists, both black and white, led him to, into the Civil War. And he became very, very interested in the politics of the Civil War, how the, the politics of the nation leading up to the Civil War and the aftermath of the Civil War. And so he's, he's written a number of really, really fine books that let us look at military history of the Civil War in relationship to the political and cultural and social history of the Civil War. And he's he's just a very disciplined, very hardworking, very thoughtful scholar um, who works very hard in the archives, but also has the gift of being able to translate his findings into a way that it's um, makes his work very accessible to all populations, um, to all to all communities, to all audiences, and yet doesn't lose sort of its its its, its rigor, you know, its its origins of mm -hmm. being really good, really good work. He's a, so he's a he's a fabulous historian. Well, you mentioned the Civil War, and of course, you know, in the news now, uh, we're um, there's a good bit of um, news uh, about the Confederate flag, mm -hmm. so. 
you don't mind my asking you, talk a little bit about that in your perspective on the Confederate, as a Southern historian. Yeah. And by the way, this is Henry McCarthy on Poets and Writers Today and WEHC 90.7 out of the beautiful Emory and Henry College campus. And we're interviewing Michelle Gillespie, and she is an outstanding writer and uh, quite a scholar on Southern history. Well, in terms of the Confederate flag, I think most people do not realize that the Confederate flag that we see um, on T-shirts and on websites um, that's used today as a symbol of states' rights and independence had its origin in the 1950s in response to civil rights movement, in response to Supreme Court decisions. So, um, so it's very if you if you don't realize this, you think that the the use of this Confederate flag represents a, a long-standing history. In fact, it's a relatively recent symbol that was brought forward in opposition to the civil rights movement. Uh, and I think most people have no idea about that history because that's, you know, that's 60 years old. That's 60 years, some 60 years ago now. But in fact, it helps you understand and um, it helps you recognize why for many people, whites as well as African-Americans, that that flag is such a powerful and frightening symbol. Uh, so you're saying its origin has been fairly recent. That's then, right, in and, terms and its of use. History. Its use. Um, it's it's and yeah. the way it has. Or was been it used, used on the battlefield? It's or? it's it was one of the flags right. used on the battlefield, uh, mm -hmm. and and there there one could make an argument that mm -hmm. there are other that, that that there would be a better choice of flags being used mm -hmm. here. But that's but the symbol of the Confederate flag was not used in the way it's been used until the beginnings of the civil rights movement in the 1950s. And so I, I don't see how you can read the, the, the construction and the power of that symbol as anything but anti-civil rights movement, that its origins are anti-civil rights movement. And when you know that, it has to change your relationship to that flag. And you know, this is interesting to me too, and I, I know Michelle, we're interviewing Michelle Gillespie today, and you know, from time to time, I a lot of you writers I consider my friends, so I will send you. I don't know if I sent you Steve Spurrier, who I grew up. Now, you listeners around here, you listen over in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Steve and I grew up in Qantas Park, and, of course, was a Heisman Trophy winner, and then he was coach at Florida and Duke, and, uh, and now he's at South Carolina. But he was in the news not long ago because uh, in 2007 he felt it was a distraction uh, when he came to South Carolina to his football players. So I think that's interesting, and Steve has been in the news lately for that, and some of you listeners out there have heard me read my poem about Steve and how much money he makes and how I have to worry about paying the utility bills. But anyway, that's a little <laughs> side story about that. So that's very interesting in, in terms of... Um, contemporary right, uh, right, history. Right. And, and to see the way in which um, we've watched the South and the nation mm -hmm. really turn its back right. on that symbol yes. and, and yes. take it apart in a very, yes. very, very short period of time in the wake do, of the Charleston tragedy. We do have an American flag. And That's I think right. We all agree That's on right. That. Now, we want to get to your book today uh, that I'm, I first read this book and I read it and I didn't know Michelle, and I was—I had read several books on the Reynolds. And uh, some of you know that I went to high school in Winston-Salem. I was born over in Johnson City. My mom was from 
Roan Mountain, the top of Roan Mountain. My dad was from the streets of Boston, but some of you know that I'm, you know, I'm down here in Winston a lot, and I went to high school here. But I didn't know that Michelle had written this book. I had read two others, and then I read the uh, Michelle's book, Catherine and R.J. Reynolds, Partners of Fortune in the Making of the South. And I thought, wow, this is the best book that I've read on the Reynolds family and their history. It's just excellent. So we were having coffee together, and I mentioned that, you know, I knew something about the book, and you said, yeah, I know, because I wrote it. I, <laughs> I just thought that was great. That was I so funny. That it. was really fun when All we right. met. So talk a little bit about your book, Sure, Michelle. sure. So I moved to, to Wake Forest in Winston-Salem in 1999, and I, as I came to the city, I, I realized how absolutely uh, important Catherine and R.J. Reynolds had been to the construction of a new South City, to the, to the transition of a little town, into, by 1920, the biggest city in North Carolina. And, um, and so, and, and I looked around for information about Catherine and R.J. Reynolds. And in particular, I, I, I've done a lot of Southern women's history, and, and I was uh, particularly interested in Catherine Reynolds because I had never really seen a woman like Catherine Reynolds in the scholarship. Uh, and I thought, well, wh why don't we know more about these kinds of these kinds of women? Catherine Reynolds didn't was not just a wealthy woman who was private and kept to herself. She constructed her own uh, estate over a thousand acres. Mm -hmm. She was involved in okay. one social and civic activity after another. And she really was one of the leading progressive women in North Carolina and the South in the 20th century. She died in 1924. She was born in 1880. So I, at first I was really interested in Catherine's history. But as I started to write her biography, I realized that no one had ever written a biography of R.J. Reynolds. And that shocked me. That simply shocked me. And that I couldn't do this book about Catherine that I wanted to do unless I told R.J. Reynolds' story too. So I went back to the drawing board and I thought to myself that I need to write about both of them. That they well, were... you certainly have, uh, Michelle Gillespie, and you have presented both of, I, you know, uh, as a male, I, I just really got into what he was doing, but by your covering what he did and then knowing the power that she had in terms of the influence, and around here we all know Renolda and Renolda Village and how she built that in, in the home and the estate and then her influence. She was 30 years younger than him. That's right. That's right. Yeah. She was 30 years younger. And I think that they were real compliments to each other. And, and there was a kind of respect and mutuality between them. So that he, I think he relied on her for her understanding of marketing, for her understanding of changing tastes, uh, and for her, her for her vision for what um, advertising could be for the company. I think RJR himself was just a, a real mastermind and a very entrepreneurial entrepreneurial uh, for much of his life, but then making the switch to building a corporation, which very few entrepreneurs can do, can make that switch from being uh, an entrepreneur to building corporations that he did. So the two of them are rather remarkable. Well, I don't think they're perfect people. No. I think they have they had real limits. Well, um, certainly. Certainly they did. And, and I learned so many um, interesting things about him. And again, as we mentioned earlier, that he was a, he attended Emory and Henry College, and he had a brother that lived down in Bristol. We have a number of uh, listeners in Bristol, Virginia, mm -hmm. Bristol, mm -hmm. Tennessee, and also that Catherine at one time went to the women's college, but she went to Sullins College right up on the hill there, 
um, you know, on the uh, Virginia side. Absolutely, so, yeah. absolutely. So she yeah. went to the, the uh, normal institute that became, uh, eventually became UNCG, but she also didn't finish her, her college career there. Then she went to Sullins and was just the, the darling of Sullins College. Uh, she was uh, named faculty favorite, and I think the expectation that she was, that she was going to find her former you know, her future husband at one of the many dances there. Uh, but she didn't. Uh, she didn't. She eventually found RJR, her, her first cousin once removed, I should add. Uh, well, they're Bill. Yes, yes, they were related. And uh, been on the Solons campus. Those folks that live in Bristol know the buildings are still there. And uh, it's you, a beautiful yeah, campus. It's a beautiful, I, I went to visit yeah, and I got and, 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 and yeah. uh, could really imagine Catherine in that place on the hill. I tell you, if you want to read a really good book and and about the history of Catherine R. J. Reynolds, you got to pick up a copy of this book by Michelle Gillespie because it's so well written, so well researched. Michelle, could I get you to read a little bit from this? Oh, book I would be happy we, to do um, that. I would be happy to do that. I always like to ask you to do that, and uh, why don't we just start at the beginning here? Um, Richard Joshua Reynolds lived the proverbial American success story on a big Southern stage. Contemporary narratives extolled his modest origins in the Virginia backcountry and his rags-to-riches scramble to fame and fortune. A rugged individualist with deeply ingrained habits of hard work and thrift, RJR used his all-American virtues to build a nationally renowned company in the heart of North Carolina's bright-leaf tobacco country. As a Southern-born business hero, he embodied the South's version of the everyman-made-good story. His career reads like a romance, observed a close friend. He made as many millions enjoying the Winston-Salem Twin City Sentinel, but he started in a small way with nothing but the best practical common sense and built a little at a time. Remarked the Raleigh News and Observer, starting life in modest circumstances, he became a multimillionaire through habits of industry and application, uncommonly fine business judgment and imagination and daring. Self-made men have always stood out in our national imagination as proof positive of America's especially elastic social system. RJR's archetypal transformation from alleged bumpkin to national business leader made the perennial myth of American meritocracy more convincing to Southerners hoping to escape the region's tenacious poverty and benefit at long last from modernization's impact. All right, now that's about R.J. Reynolds, and then part of your book is about Catherine Reynolds, and we've talked a lot about her. Um, I find her, again, remarkable. And also, could you talk a little bit about um, her second marriage? I know he died, uh, R.J. died when they first moved into Renolda. R.J.R. died in 1918, so Catherine and R.J.R. had been married 13 years. They'd had four children. Uh, uh, when he died. He died of pancreatic cancer. And Catherine loved him very, very much, very deeply. She was in mourning, but to pull herself out of mourning, she was creating a school on the estate. And she was getting help from the uh, superintendent of schools. And she was going to have this school for her own children, her friends' children, and also the children of the farmers in the neighborhood. In fact, she was creating two schools. This was segregated times. One of the schools was for white children. One of the schools was for African-American children. What was really unusual about these schools is that she gave 
gave equal resources to both, which was unusual in this time period. Anyway, she needed a principal for her schools, and she interviewed principals. And from Davidson County, North Carolina, came a veteran from World War I uh, who had been a principal and a school teacher in Davidson. And he was a very handsome man. Uh, 14 years younger than Catherine, incredibly, uh, incredibly uh, dynamic, incredibly uh, committed to education, and the two of them worked together to plan schools. They went on a chaperone trip together with the superintendent and one of the teachers of the schools around um, the Northeast, looking at uh, looking at other schools, architecture or other schools, and um, and when they came back, they were clearly madly in love. All right, and uh, you had, and she actually um, going to have my have a great producer here, Richard Graves, and he's watching the time clock for us today. So he, so they came back. She died actually in childbirth. She had one child by him, and so that is a very interesting aspect of her life. But I will tell you, two very strong people, and I have to say, uh, Catherine it is. Uh, I was just struck by her intelligence and her drive. It was, it's, a, it's a beautiful book, so pick up a copy of Michelle Gillespie's book, and it's Catherine and R.J. Reynolds. And Catherine, thanks you, thank you so much for being on Poets and Writers today. It's really been my pleasure. Just an honor and a delight, Henry, to talk with you. Thank you. I love coming here to all these college campuses in Wake Forest, uh, second to Emory and Henry College, has is, is, is got to be my favorite. So thanks again, and folks, thanks for listening out there to Poets and Writers. This is Henry McCarthy saying, I'm going out to write a poem. Do not wait up for me. I'm going out to write a poem and watch the children play.